it's, it's one of these messages that God was giving me, and I felt the pressure of this one. Typically, I don't feel the pressure of preaching. I felt the pressure of this one because this is a subject that I'm talking about today that if we get this right, it's going to change our lives, it's going to change our church, it's going to change this city. And so you, you get these, you start going on these rabbit trails in your Bible studies and your time with God. And by the time I was done praying and studying the word, I had like two hours worth of content. How many people want me to preach for two hours? Make some noise. No, you don't. I don't even want me to preach for two hours. You know you got somewhere to be. But, so I had to figure out how to condense two hours of Bible study in like half an hour. And so um, I believe that God gave me the right things to say out of everything that, that, that I learned in, in his presence. And so you got your Bibles, you got your phone. Turn to Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Matthew chapter 9, verses 10 through 13. Are you ready? Turn to your neighbor. We say that a lot as preachers. Turn to your neighbor. Turn to your neighbor and tell him this is going to be a good one today. I like it's going to be a good one today. I don't know where we got that from, but I'm going to keep doing it. Matthew 9, verses 10 through 13 say this. As Jesus reclined at the table in the house, at the table in, in the house. It says at table in the house. Something messed up. It's not proper English, but it's Jesus reclined at the table in the house. My favorite word from this passage of scripture is recline because it literally means Jesus was chilling. It didn't say he was sitting at the table. If I was the king of kings and the Lord of lords, I'd probably be sitting up with my shoulders out. Perfect posture, but the Bible says Jesus was chilling. That word recline meant like it's a visual of like him having his arm around the back of the chair like what y'all doing up in here? Bunch of sinners up in here. I'm just chilling. Right? You think if he was in a room full of sinners he'd be rebuking, telling people what to do? He's reclining in the middle of a group of sinners and I love that about Jesus is Jesus knew I'm the answer to all of this. I'm not going to make a big deal out of your sin. I'm going to make a big deal about the answer which is me. Some of y'all make a big deal about your sin and not a big deal about the answer. Jesus Christ. You got to make a bigger deal about Jesus than you do about your shortcomings. Sometimes you can't even overcome your failures until you chill out. Until you just chill. All your striving, you can't overcome. That's not my message. Hold on, man. Hold on. So Jesus was chilling. And behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus. I love that. Jesus was relaxed, so they did too. How would you be around Jesus? Jesus is chill around you because he wants you to be chill around him. I don't know about you, but if I'm in the middle of my sin and Jesus shows up, I'm like, oh, I'm just like straightening up and... It's literally, I want to give you the visual picture of what was happening. Jesus was chilling, so they're like, okay. I guess we good. Is he going to mention anything about what's going on? All right. You know, ain't no fire coming down from heaven. Okay, cool. And it says, when the Pharisees saw the, Jesus chilling and, and, the, and the sinners chilling, they had an issue with it. I wonder if they would have said something if the sinners were trying to fix everything and get it right or if Jesus was yelling and rebuking, but he saw Jesus chilling and they saw the sinners chilling and they said, wait a second, why 
your teacher just hanging out and eating with, eating with tax collectors and sinners and some, some Greek Bible scholars transferred like to the scum of the earth, the lowest of the low. And Jesus came up out of his chill and broke the chill and was like, wait a minute. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. And then he says this powerful, powerful passage of scripture in verse 13. He said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, which is confusing because doesn't God want us to be righteous? I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call the sinners. I want you to imagine the Pharisees represent the religious people doing everything, striving, trying to get it right with God. They're in the presence of God. The sinners are in the presence of God. Jesus is relaxing. The sinners are relaxing. The Pharisees are getting all agitated because Jesus is chilling with the sinners. So here you have literally God, sinners in the presence of God, religious people in the presence of God, and God wants to send the religious people away and say, go learn something. I desire mercy not sacrifice. I know you've been to growth track three times. I know you come to service all day. I know you've joined your 27th Bible study in three weeks. I don't even know how you do that. I know you're sacrificing so much. I know you're giving 10% of your income and you've upped it to 11% and 12% and 21%. But I want you to go desire what this, I want you to go figure out what this means, mercy. You pray for 18 hours a day because you don't understand mercy. Get out of my presence and go learn what this means. Go learn what what mercy means. I don't know what Christmas means to you, but God put this message on my heart called trading places. Because what do you think about in the Christmas season? Some of y'all think about that Mariah Carey song. Jesus. What did she say? Yeah, that's not how it starts. I like how you jump straight to the beginning. She starts off strong. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There is just one thing I need. Ah, you see that? Right? I'm going to teach you the attack of the enemy right now. She threw them ahs in there because she wants to try to distract you from what she's about to really say. This is how the enemy works. Watch. Watch. Because watch. You think she don't want a lot, right? So what? The ahs are what's distracting you. I don't want a lot for Christmas. There is just one thing I need. Ah, you're like, and she says, I just want you for my own. Or you're like, whoa. Whoa. You guys, you got distracted with the Oz. It's a stalker song. This is a song about a stalker. Not somebody that doesn't want. I want you for my own. I was just, ah, uh, you said, I just want you for my own. Whoa, can we start with a, with a bath bomb? Some perfume? Because all you want for Christmas is me? You asking for a lot. This is too much pressure. She slid in the Christmas message, trying to act like she didn't want a lot. I just want you. That's it. Slip in the subliminal messages in Christmas time. Or what about this? Santa Claus is coming to town. I like the Jackson 5 version. Santa Claus is coming to town. I can't do the run. You know, black people, we always over singing something. To town. Like, we just, it's just town. Okay? We're like, to town. Tell you, boy, you get a brother leading worship. You are worthy. 
of his name. We're going to be here all day. Gosh. Anyway, I still like the Jackson 5 version, even though it takes them a long time to get through it. But don't you like that song? Santa Claus is coming to town. Santa Claus is coming to town. You start feeling like it's a good song? He knows when you are sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. For we good for goodness sake. That's not a good song. You've been hoodwinked, bamboozled, led astray. That song is a song about judgment. You're making a list and checking it twice, gonna find out who's naughty or nice. It says, it literally says, I wrote the lyrics down. It says that we can't pout. You better not pout, you better not cry. So since I'm in touch with my emotions, I can't get a gift. Some old, out of shape, fat white man who all his friends are elves is trying to tell me how to live my life? I'm not falling for the bamboozlement of the Christmas season. All your friends are elves. You trying to tell me I'm putting you on the naughty list? Child labor? Look at all them kids making all them toys. Don't fall for it. Christmas has a lot of subliminal messages. But then you got to be careful, right? Because you could be that guy, that person, that girl. Christmas is not about this. It's not about commercialism. I know some people that grew up and their parents didn't get them any gifts. They didn't celebrate Christmas. And sometimes we can get so locked into what Christmas is not about, we forget what it is about. It's not what it's not about. It's what it's about. We're celebrating the birth of Jesus, that Jesus came as a baby. Why would he do that? That makes no sense. Wouldn't you come as a general, already a king? He was a king, but he was a baby king. God, for some reason, wanted to put Jesus, a baby. Would you put your kids? Now, I know you think this is a rough time, which maybe it is. But I promise you, you would rather live in Sherman Oaks in 2019 than in Rome in any time. Like, you wouldn't let any... Like, I don't know about this, but I won't let my kids go anywhere. Jesus, God sent his one and only son in this environment and then didn't even give Jesus like a hospital. Jesus was not born at Cedar Sinai. He didn't even get Kaiser. Jesus came down to earth, no PPO, no HMO. It was just like, yo, where are we going to be? It was, it was... And God said, I'm going to put him in the middle of this mess. And I love this about Jesus, that God didn't fix it. He put himself in the middle of it. And sometimes we want God to fix it. But God's saying, you know what? The Christmas season is not celebrating what God fixed. It's celebrating what God got in the middle of. And sometimes we don't want God to meet us in it. We just, just fix it. Right? Just fix it. Just do something about it. Sometimes we don't want to meet people in the middle of their mess. We just want to fix it. We're celebrating the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords getting in the middle of the mess. 
And because he was in the middle of it, he understands what we, we go through. What does Christmas mean to you? Why did God have to send Jesus to come? There's this scripture in the Bible. The world started off, you and I, humanity, started off Adam and Eve walking in truth. And I want to tell you something that we got to be careful that we don't just say Jesus came to die for our sin. Jesus came to trade places with us. There's a trading that happens in the presence of God. Well, we bring things to God. God gives things to us. We, even prayer is to trade. Did you know the Greek definition of prayer? The, the Bible says in Philippians chapter 3, with both prayer and petition. Is that Philippians chapter 3? It is today. It's in Philippians. Four, that's what I meant. Did I say three? I, said, I thought I said I meant four. Four, eleven? Cool. Okay. It says, and we come to God with both prayer and petition. Petition is asking God for stuff. Please ask God for big things. But prayer means to trade wishes. So when you're praying to God, you are going to God with something and leaving with something different than what you came to God with. You're going to God with your own dream and coming out with his. You're going to God with depression and coming out with joy. You're going to God with judgment and you're coming out with mercy. You're going to God with a lie and you're coming out with truth. It's to exchange and to trade. And so many times we hoop and holler and, and clap our hands and we come to church every single Sunday and there's nothing different about us because we're not trading. And I, there's a lot of things people need to trade. There's a lot of things I need to trade. But I want to focus on two things. And the main thing I believe that is crazy is Jesus had to come and get in the middle of our mess because of something that happens. And it's described in Romans chapter 1, 25 through 27, where it says the people, God's people, God's children, it says this. They traded the truth about God for a lie. A lie. How many people have felt under, under attack in this season? I want us to, I'm trying to figure out a way to say this because I do believe you can be under attack. But I want to take that language out of our church. That I'm under attack. Because it's much deeper. What is he attacking you with? A lie. What do you have? The truth. So it's not just that he's attacking you. He's trying to get you to trade your, the truth of God for a lie that he told you. So instead of saying the enemy's attacking me, just say, he's trying to get me to trade. He's trying to get me to trade the truth for a lie. What happened with Adam and Eve? They traded the truth for a lie. Jesus decided that instead of punishing you for that, he would take the punishment. Can you imagine the goodness of God? We're the ones who traded the truth for a lie, and then God comes as truth and says, I'll trade you back. Do you understand the power in that? He says, Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Where God could have punished us for that, but instead he's saying, I'll come down as a baby, grow up, be without sin, die on the cross, and say to you right now in this moment, I'll trade you you got to give up the lie for the truth. So many of us don't give up the lie, and we want to receive the truth. You come and you get a Christmas gift, and they get you a, a, a large, when you've been on keto and you're a medium, <laughs> they got you the gift pre-keto, 
and you go to H&M and you have the large and you want the medium, they're not going to give you the medium unless you give them the large. Sometimes God is not going to give you peace unless you give him anxiety. Sometimes God's not going to give you faith unless you give him fear. There's a trading that needs to take place. And the Bible says that Jesus had to come because God's people traded the truth for a lie. And then Jesus comes and says, I'm the truth. I'll trade you again. I love this. The whole Bible is just Jesus regifting himself over and over again. And we don't really want that kind of mercy from God, do we? We don't want that kind of giving from God. We want to figure it out. Come on, anybody been in a gift exchange? I hate gift exchanges. Right? They set a limit for $25 most of the time, so you don't have to stretch your generosity to be a part of it. And they're protecting you from having to spend too much money because we don't want that pressure, right? But you know what else they're protecting us from? Those gift exchanges? They're protecting us from someone else giving us a gift that's more valuable than what we gave them. And we don't want to be in that situation. We don't want you to give us a $100 gift and all we gave you was a 20. We don't want God to give us grace and all we got is this one little prayer. We want it to be equal. Come on, you ever been on your way to somebody's house? And you find out they got you a gift, so you stop at Target and show up with the gift trying to act like that was your original intention. Anybody ever done that? Right? Because we don't, we don't want, we got to trade. It's got to be equal. Here's the thing. I love this about God. When, it, when you trade the lot, God always takes what you, and he gives you more than what you gave him. I love that about God. It says that we traded, though, we traded this truth, and we traded it for a lie. And then Jesus shows up in John chapter 8, and watch what he says. He says this. He says, John chapter 8, 32, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. You know that know word? It's an intimate term. Like that word know, Mary said, how can I be pregnant when I know not a man? It was an intimate term. term. So it doesn't say the truth that is preached to you will set you free. The truth that you're intimate with will set you free. So somebody's in bondage because you keep making out with your past. You got to be intimate with the truth. You have to not just hear it. You got to be intimate with the truth. And, and, and if the truth that you're intimate with that will set you free, then the lie you're intimate with will keep you in bondage. In order for it to be a lie, you have to be intimate with it. Otherwise, it's just a joke. Think about it. If I tell you right now, my nationality, I'm half Puerto Rican and half Korean. Why are you laughing? Because clearly, obviously, I'm not half Puerto Rican and half Korean. That's why you're laughing. But if for some reason you believed it, it's not a joke anymore. It's a lie. It's not a lie because I said it. It's a lie because you believed it. If you don't believe it, it's just a joke. So the enemy tells you something that he's not, that God is not for you, that God will not provide for you, and it's a joke. It becomes a lie when you believe it. 
Watch this. God has never believed a lie. In Psalm chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, this, God says this about people who are coming against God's people. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings, the evil kings of the earth set themselves and the evil rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed. Who's his anointed? Who's his chosen? You and I. And it says that they say about them, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. And God sits in heaven and laughs. He thinks that's hilarious. You think you're going to stop my people from getting what I have for them? That's hilarious. He never once believes it. He doesn't say angels were under attack. The enemy's trying to tell us a lie. He says that's a joke. You got you to gotta start telling the enemy when he's coming after your marriage, that's a joke. Because here's what he does. He makes people in our lives do things to believe a lie about them. So it's not that you're upset at what they did. You're, uh, you're really upset at who you think that person is. So he makes you believe lies about yourself and about people. And, he, and, and the enemy comes to you and he tries to make you exchange the truth for a lie. It's not true. And the duration of how long you believe it turns until you are ready to laugh at what the enemy's trying to tell you. Somebody thinks that their future is over and God's not going to use them. You need to laugh like Kawhi Leonard. Aha, aha, aha. You need to laugh. Are you kidding? The God I serve doesn't have a plan for me? That's laughable. Because when you do that, you change the attack to stand-up comedy. You, you get what I'm saying? I don't know, I don't know, devil, what you, you need to go on tour. This is hilarious. When you believe it, it's not funny anymore. It's not funny. Jesus came and he traded places with us. And I think the number one thing we need to trade is our lies for the truth of God. And the only way you can do that is to be intimate with the truth. And here's the thing. The enemy comes to lie to you about an area you haven't been intimate in the truth with. Why do you think he's lying to you about your finances? Because he's trying to get you to make money so you can believe it's going to be okay. You're not intimate with the truth that God is my provider. He attacks you through sickness because you're not intimate with the truth that God is my healer. And I'm not saying that it's your fault. Hear what I'm saying. I'm saying primarily he goes after places that you don't know the truth or you are not intimate with the truth. He goes after your head knowledge. He can't touch what you put in here. One of the things about preaching, I tell people when people say you preach messages, I believe the best preachers are the ones where their words, the distance that it has to go from the depths of their spirit out of their mouth. It doesn't go from their head out of their mouth. They got that thing so deep down in their spirit. And I'm telling you right now, you got to trade your lie for the truth. And you have an area in your life right now you are believing a lie. And you got to trade it. You can't just pray that the enemy will stop attacking. you got to trade it. This is, a, this is the truth, and I, and I, and I want to believe. Does that make sense? Yes. And then there's a lot of things that we could talk about what Jesus traded. But one of the big things is he traded mercy for judgment. Now, mercy takes a lot of humility to receive. And I'm realizing that most people who call themselves Christians do not understand mercy and they don't want it. 
Because mercy is very humbling to receive. Grace is when God gives you all the good things you don't deserve. Mercy is when God withholds the bad things you do deserve. Some of us, no matter how many relationships we've gotten in that are not God's will, we think we deserve for God to give us a husband or a wife. I spent 11 and a half years with the wrong person, with the wrong person, and I was 32 when I broke up with this girl. So you know what I said to myself? There is no way I'm getting married. And people are like, why? I spent 11 and a half years with the wrong person. Why would God give me my wife next year? So here's what I'm going to do. Literally, I'm going to give God 11 and a half years. I'm going to give God the exact amount of time I spent running from him. I'm going to give God to give me my. So then I said, 32. I'm probably not going to get married till I'm 43 because I'm going to. I don't think I deserve a wife. So God is cool. I get it. 11 and a half years with the wrong person. Do you know after saying this, I met Christina two weeks later. And I think this, you got to be careful because I'm not saying that women are, you're not, but you're worthy of someone to spend the rest of their life. No, you're not. You know you're going to get in there and all your anxiety and your fears are going to come out and they're going to have to put up with it. Nobody's worthy of the, Lord, you need to send me a wife. I'm trifling, but I need your mercy. Right? Because some of y'all are dealing, some of y'all know you're trifling. You got to deal with your trifility. It's a real word. It's a real word. I looked it up in the Webster's Dictionary. See, turn your name. It's like you. You got turn your name and say you're dealing with some trifility right now that the Lord wants to deal with because you're acting real trifling right now, right? But mercy, mercy means God. I don't deserve that. It's really hard to receive because you got to be humble. Can I give you a visual? If I give you a cup of coffee, right? Let's say I give you a cappuccino and I say to you, Hey, you know what? You didn't deserve for me to buy this cappuccino for you because I don't even know you. But here you are. You're like, wow, that's grace. Doesn't it feel good? Wow. But if someone gave you a cup of coffee and said, you deserve for me to spit in this, but I didn't. (laughs) She's like, wait, I don't want that cup of coffee. How many of you would drink that cup of coffee? Keep your coffee. You would never ask, what did I do to make you, what did I do to deserve Because no one deserves that. No one deserves anything bad. No one deserves. But but this encounter where you understand, I deserve something bad, then when you get something from God, you get it because of mercy, not because God owes it to you. We, We have to exchange judgment for mercy. And not just judgment means I did all the right things, so God give it to me. So we have to exchange it. And mercy is really tough. It's a really tough concept. you got to be humble. Because mercy is acknowledging that something is wicked in your life. And all we do is spend all our time acknowledging the wickedness in other people. That's all we do. I'm good. I love the Lord. I'm this. You. And so we don't understand mercy. And I know you don't understand mercy because you can't give it. You can't give it. You can't give it. Uh, last night, I know y'all ain't been praying for me because my son was acting a fool last night. I know you ain't been praying. 
My son was acting a fool. I can honestly say this was the toughest bedtime I've ever had with my son. He was in there. I don't know if he was tired. I don't know what was going on. He was yelling at his mom. So I stepped in as a dad and I was like, hey, you get in here right now. And my son was like, he was ready to go, like squared up. Like, listen, you know, I'm not brushing my teeth. I said, you are brushing your teeth. He said, no, I'm not. And I said, listen, you sit down right now. I said, sit down. Sometimes you got to talk through your teeth, man, kids. Sit down. Jesus is talking to some of y'all through his teeth right now. Sit down somewhere, man. So he sat down on the rug in his room, and he's like, I'm not, I, that's it. I'm not talking to anybody. He said, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to Bailey. I'm not talking to my mom. I'm dipping on me to talk at church, and I'm not going to talk at church. I'm not going to talk at school. I'm not talking. I said, you keep talking. I'm not kidding. He's like, you keep on talking. He's like, I'm not talking anymore. I said, well, you keep on talking. He said, starting now. I'm not making this up. So I said, boy, I'm taking away all your trains. And then he started crying because he lost his trains and he was mad at me, even though he was. A so I took all his trains. He went to bed. I took his trains. I was like, I'm taking your trains away. He wakes up this morning and he's sad. And he comes out of the bedroom because he remembers the last thing that happened to me before I went to bed was all my trains got taken away. And he comes out of the room. He's going like this. Right. And he's so upset and he's so frustrated. But yet the first thing he does is sit in my lap. And I love that picture, because even if his father did something that he didn't understand, his instinct was proximity. And I think so many times when God, God the Father does something we don't understand, our instinct is distance. But his instinct was proximity. So he sits on my lap, and I said, buddy, go look on the kitchen table. And it was all his trains. And I said, look, daddy wants to teach you about something called mercy. And he said, what's mercy? Mercy is what happens when you wake up in the morning. There's this beautiful Bible verse, son, that says God's mercy is new every morning. So that means because it's a new morning, you don't have to have the punishment for what you did yesterday because God's mercy is new every morning. And I said, so daddy's going to give your trains back, not because you deserve them, but because of mercy. And here's the thing, he's gotten all those trains before and he was happier about the same trains because he got the trains back through mercy. And I'm watching him play with these trains all over again like he's gotten them for the first time. And so Christina wakes up and I say, hey, hey buddy, go tell your mom about what happened this morning. And he goes, dad gave me mercy. <laughs> she said, really buddy? He said, yep. And I got my trains back, it's a new day. <laughs> That's mercy. Mercy is, it's a new day. Do you know what would happen in your marriage if your husband or your wife did that trifling thing yesterday and you woke up in the morning and you said, it's a new day, God has mercy for you. You know what would happen? You know what would happen if you watched CNN or Fox News and prayed for mercy instead of posting? You know what would happen? Are you believing for a miracle? In any area of your life, are you believing for a miracle? There was this one miracle in the, in the Bible where a blind man did not ask for a miracle, he asked for mercy. He said, son of David, have mercy on me. He was shouting, and the people said, calm down, dude, you're going to He said, no, 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 and the Bible says the more they tried to calm him down, the louder he yelled, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus said, what do you want? He said, I want to see. The mercy preceded the miracle. 
What if you have a situation in your life where God's trying to get you to to, to extend mercy and receive mercy and you're not seeing the miracle because you haven't received the mercy? You're not receiving the miracle because you haven't given away the mercy. The mercy preceded the miracle. So here's what the enemy does. He brings you into a situation that you need mercy and you won't ask for it. You just say, nobody's perfect. God loves me the way I am. Right? We don't ask for mercy. We ask, or we say, God, will you change it? We beg God to change it. Change this about me. Paul said he asked somebody to take something. He asked God to take something away three times. Three times. And God wouldn't take it away. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient. The Lord didn't say, I'm not taking it away because that's who you are. He said, my grace is sufficient. So what happens is, whether it's a thought or sexuality, we ask God to take it away. And if he doesn't, we let the world tell us that's who we are. Instead of saying, God, it's it's still here. I need your mercy. And if I never change, I need your mercy. And here's the thing. When you receive mercy, it always changes. It always changes. Think about that for a second. I need your mercy. Mercy. The mercy is preceding a miracle. Somebody needs a miracle in their finances, but you don't understand mercy, so there's no miracle. There's no miracle. Mercy. Mercy instead of judgment. You have, see, see, many of us in this room were raised in a family that was plagued by a critical spirit. And now you live to this day cut off from mercy. Anybody been criticized by a boss, a coach, a parent? Raise your hand. Look how many people. It's designed to cut you off from mercy. Cut you off from mercy. Because criticism has to do with control. People don't give us mercy because they're afraid that if they give us mercy, we won't change. But mercy changes everything. Mercy changes you. And God said, I I need to give you mercy. He came bearing mercy. And mercy is really complex because mercy is an acknowledgement that it's wicked. And we would rather say nobody's perfect. We would rather do that than get forgiveness from God. Or we say stuff that is theologically incorrect. I need to learn to forgive myself. No, you don't. You sinned against God. You need mercy. Can you imagine if someone came up to you and they stole your money? I need to learn to forgive myself. No, I need to forgive you. You stole my money. You can't forgive yourself for what you did to somebody else. You didn't sin against yourself. You sinned against God. You sinned against God. And so what you need to ask for is mercy, not change. Mercy, not change. Because here's what's mercy. Mercy does allow you to get an understanding that I'm not perfect. I might not be living my life the way, but that's not who I am. Who I am is a sinner that's received mercy. And then in the mercy, you will find the miraculous. And so many times we ask people to change. We ask people to do different stuff and say, you know what, there's mercy for that. This is a really hard concept to receive. But somebody in here needs to receive mercy. Jesus said this story. I want you to go and what this, find out what this means, that I desire mercy. James chapter 2, verse 13 says this, for judgment is without mercy to someone who has shown no mercy. You know that verse in the Bible where it says, and, and God, and give, and it'll be given unto you, unto you, pressed down and shaken together. We think money. And I've heard that in offering messages. 
But the reality is, is that verse says, you judge and God will judge you. Give and it'll be given unto you. So that verse means that if you give judgment, that's what you receive. But if you give mercy, that's what you receive. And be careful not to call your judgment justice. Right? Because justice in the Bible is for the widow and the orphan, not the person who put them in this, that situation. We're giving justice. So when you're giving justice to the orphan, you're saying the corrupt government put the orphan in this situation. But I'm not spending all my energy complaining about the corrupt government. I'm spending all my energy helping and being a blessing to what, who the corrupt government affected. That's justice. Do you see what I'm saying? Justice is not ever for the person who did it. That's judgment. It's for the person affected. Justice is for the person affected. We, we, we always say we want, I've heard this and I'm not trying to you know, make any waves, but I'm saying I heard a preacher once say that we need to vote against abortion because we need justice for the unborn child. No, justice is, justice is not in a vote. Justice is, is will you help a single mom? You ever bought a single mom's groceries? You ever babysitted for a single mom? You ever done that? That's justice. What's the point of you voting and not doing anything about it? That's not justice. I'm not saying not to vote, but I'm saying will you help? Will you serve? It is mercy. Mercy. And it says, it says this, it says mercy triumphs over judgment. What does that mean? Why does mercy need to triumph over judgment? Because mercy and judgment don't get along. So there's this battle between judgment and mercy. And, and judgment sometimes wins in your life. There's this battle between judgment and mercy. And the battle between judgment and mercy often is, God, I'm judging that I've done all the right things, so why aren't you blessing me? No, 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 no. Mercy triumphs over judgment. God, they're doing all these crazy things. All these crazy things happen in the world. No, no, no. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The reason why mercy is so hard is grace doesn't have to battle with anything. Mercy has to battle with judgment, and you have to let mercy win. The Bible doesn't say God's grace is new every morning. His mercy is new every morning. You can be dealing with somebody who's hurt you so deeply, and you should just say to yourself, if I could just make it to the morning, I can have a fresh dose of mercy to give this person. A fresh dose of mercy. And we need to receive mercy because... If you don't receive mercy, then you remain wicked. You know the difference between a wicked person and a sinner? They do all the same things. The wicked person doesn't want mercy. That's it. So we can categorize every person in this room right now in wicked or sinners. Every person. We're one or the other. We both do all the same things. We have all the same issues. One person wants mercy. The other person wants to fix it or control it. And you can never be who God's called you to be without mercy. You can never be who God's called you to be without mercy. I want you to stand to your feet. Jesus' first sermon. First sermon. I want you to think about this. His first sermon. He gets baptized. He gets tempted. He gets tempted in, in the wilderness. 
And I, and I love God because God, the Bible says that we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. This is Hebrews 4.15. Because in every way he was tempted just as we are. Yet he didn't sin. In every way. In every way. So he gets tempted in the wilderness. He overcomes that temptation. And then he goes and he shows up to the temple and he preaches his first message. And what do you think he's going to preach? His first message. He preaches in Luke 4, verses 18 through 20. And he says this. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. For he has anointed me. And he starts trading to bring good news to the poor. He says, I'll trade you your poverty for good news. Not your poverty for money, because poverty is a mindset and a spiritual condition. So he says, I can't trade you for money, because if I give you money and you don't change the mindset and you're spiritually poor, it won't do you any good. So here's what, I'll trade you your poverty for good news. And he says, he sent me to proclaim that captives will be released. I will trade you your captivity for freedom. He says that the blind will see. I'll trade you your blindness, not just physical blindness, that too, but I'll trade you your spiritual blindness for sight. You'll walk by faith. I'll trade you. And it says that the oppressed will be set free. The original translation was the prisoners will be set free. So even if it's your fault, captives and prisoners, captives, it's not their fault. Prisoners, it is. Doesn't matter whose fault it is. Everybody's going free. I'll trade you. And then he says, and that the time, and this word means year, that the year of the Lord's favor has come. It is the year, the year, December 19, December 2019 to December 2020 is the year of the Lord's favor. And you would think that the people he was preaching to would have clapped, but they didn't. It says that he, in verse 20, that he rolled up the scroll and handed it back to the attendant and sat down. And all eyes in the synagogue looked at him intently. And it doesn't say why they did, but I believe God has given me some revelation. I believe they were waiting for him to finish his sentence because everybody in that room would have memorized that sentence, would have memorized that passage. And they were curious because Jesus sat down and he didn't finish it because the original quote, he was quoting Isaiah 61, where it says, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me for the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to comfort the brokenhearted and to proclaim that the captives will be released and the prisoners will be freed. He has sent me to tell those who mourn that the time of the Lord's favor had come, but Jesus sat down and did not say, and with it, the day of anger against their enemies. Because Jesus had come with favor but judgment had been traded for mercy. And some of you are not walking in favor because you're waiting for Jesus to finish his sentence with the people who hurt you. You're waiting for him to judge politicians and judge and you can't walk in a miracle because that day has not come. It is a day of mercy and God is trying to get you to prepare yourself for a miracle with mercy and you gotta be humble enough to ask God for his mercy. Because I think in pride we ask God for a miracle when the mercy preceded the miracle. 